Welcome to the Money Talks Money Matters podcast. We're here to take away the stigma of money and provide a transparent platform of knowledge for anyone that tunes in. The goal is to give 20-year-olds the perspective of 80-year-olds in regards to business, finance, and decision-making. My name is Darian Williams. And I'm Sean McHenry. What's good, y'all? So today we normally start with energy kind of like this. But today, we have one of the most genuine and transparent conversations we've had on this show probably ever. Douglas Eden is a genuine person who's only here to love and serve his community. He shares how to make it, how to achieve success, no matter where you come from, and why love has to be the most important aspect in everything you do. This is episode 15 of the Money Talks, Money Matters podcast. Let's launch right into it. For launch in three, two, great to have you on hey good morning guys good thanks morning. for having me nice morning. to have you so if you just kind of want to run it down and maybe just share just a little bit about you that'd be great okay so uh first of all i'm uh here with you guys in parkland florida i grew up in hollywood florida uh went to the u university of miami graduated in 87 and now uh i am a father of two i have been married for 22 years and um i'm a financial advisor Awesome. So we were already talking about that. Do you prefer Doug or Douglas Eaton? So um, I, I would only be called Douglas as a kid when I was in trouble. And, um, you know, be my, my aunt would call me Douglas. My grandma couldn't seem to remember my name, called me Greg, but that's another story. <laughs> and um, when I, I moved to New York City, when I, I got my first big job, I, I would answer the phone, Doug Eaton. And people would go, Dougie? Dougie, and I got sick of that really fast. So I started answering the phone, Douglas Eaton. And my brother calls me once and I said, Douglas Eaton. He goes, oh, so you're in New York City. So now it's Douglas. So anyway, <laughs> Big shot now. yeah, exactly. So it's easier to say Douglas Eaton. So that's the rap, but uh, Douglas is a little pretentious. Gotcha. So Doug is fine. So you're doing it right now. You have your business, you're involved in multiple activities. Um, you're volunteering all over the place. I guess we can just start into... Um, what was your college life like and what made you want to go into the path that you took? So in college, I was a finance major. And, you know, one of the best things you can do in college is go out and get yourself a job, an internship, and, and where you think you're going to go. So my senior year, um, you know, I was living in the fraternity house. And every day I would get up, put on a suit and take, uh, you know, the metro rail down to uh, Southeast Bank, which is now SunTrust. Okay. And I was working in, I think, uh, some finance department. And um, I hated it. It just, I couldn't see myself in banking for my whole life. I didn't know what I was going to do because now, you know, now I'm pot committed. Of course. I'm a finance major, but it, it was a lot of fun. It was a great experience and it was the best possible thing because that's when you kind of realize, all right, maybe I should go out and work for a little while, then get a graduate degree and, and see where else, you know, the world takes me. But um, after I graduated, I took a different path. Um, I had a scholarship to get an MBA at, at University of Miami. And I was just going to kind of figure it out. But instead, the year after I graduated, I went to work for my fraternity. Mm. And I traveled around. And it was kind of like just being a consultant for the smaller chapters that were having trouble. So I was up and down the East Coast. Best year of my life. Uh, I had a blast. Uh, if you can imagine what that's like, an entire year of just fraternity parties. So <laughs> yeah. everywhere. So it was, it was fun. And it's a type of job you can only do when you're 22 or something like that. So it was great. But it, it taught me, number one, that um, it was better for me, at least, to work. I just wanted to be out there working, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to be in school. Yeah. So I got my first job in in basically uh, 
import and export for a manufacturing company. Okay. And uh, just, you know, learning a little bit about the world. I moved to Chicago. I worked for somebody who uh, who ran an auto parts manufacturing company. And, you know, that's that's kind of where I got my start. And then, you know, things evolved. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So now, since you went to the University of Miami on a scholarship, would you have gone there if you didn't get a scholarship? Well, I didn't, I didn't get a scholarship when I was an undergrad. Actually, I was offered a scholarship to go to grad school. But interestingly, I mean, I didn't have a scholarship and I had to get financial aid. And, you know, I, I was paying that bill back for uh, a lot of years. Got you. So if you could do it all over again, would you still have gone to the University of Miami? So, yes. And here's why. You know, when, when I was in high school, I, you know, my parents were divorced. So I lived with my dad, who was very sick. So, you know, he had MS and heart disease and all sorts of other stuff going on. So I didn't, I didn't want to go too far away. You know, I got into many different schools, um, mm, including okay. Florida, Florida State, and, you know, some other places out of state. But I wanted to be away, but not far enough away where I couldn't come home pretty frequently and pretty quickly. So it was a practical consideration. So, you know, the U, first of all, the U is a small school. There's only like 8,000 people. Yeah. But it, it seems like it's Michigan State or something like that. It seems huge. The culture's yeah, and it was back in the day where, you know, Bernie Kosar and, and Testaverde, you know, we were national champions. So it was like really on the radar screen. But it's a little small school, but I had that big time experience, but it was nice and small. It was close. And, you know, it it was what I needed at the time. And it was what my, my family needed at the time. Did you always have a work ethic like you do now? Yeah. Um, you know, I learned really early on, we, we don't have any money. So the cool thing about making money is it gives you a lot of freedom. Oh, yeah. You do what you want. Yeah. So I started delivering papers, I think, when I was 9 or 10. And it was back in the days where you had to go collect the money. So, you know, I'd go and collect, like, I don't know what it was. It's the Sun Sentinel used to be called the Sun Tattler. So I would used to deliver the Sun Tattler. And you throw it, you know, and, and the cool thing was you could see how close you can get it to the front door. So anyway, uh, without breaking something. So, um, you know, I'd collect the money and you get to keep some of it. And then I think after that, I started tarring driveways, you know, with like a paint roller. And that was backbreaking work, but I made a lot of money. And, you know, then through college, my brother and I had a car washing business where we would wash and, you know, wax cars. And, you know, I, I think the tarring of the car, uh, driveways and the washing of the cars, we did a terrible job. You know, it it wasn't like, you know we were doing quality work, but we were making money and it's a great feeling. And I think that you don't necessarily think of it as hard work. You think of it as freedom. Of course. Yeah. That's what I really liked about it. You know, nobody likes working hard. No. Let's face it. Yeah. So especially since you were such an entrepreneur when you were young, did you think that you would always be in business in some way or or another? Yeah. I caught the bug. I, I liked, I liked being an entrepreneur. It was fun. And you know, you learn a lot about yourself when you, you go to work at a big company, and, but you have kind of the entrepreneurial spirit, and that is you got you to gotta learn how to work on a team. So I think, you know, you're, you're an athlete. Did you, are you, did you do sports? In, uh, I did pole vault in high school. It wasn't very good. I did band more. Well, who cares? You were on a team. I mean, the, the point is when, you, when you're a good teammate, that teaches you everything you need to know about working on a team mm. at work. And I think, you know, my problem was, I, I was spoiled. When you're an entrepreneur, you learn that you don't have to listen too much to what anybody else is saying. So it, it stunts your growth in terms of, 
you know, being able to work on a team corporately. But I still liked it. So what happened was I gravitated towards a job where I could be very entrepreneurial, where it was based on a meritocracy and you moved up. And you didn't necessarily have to collaborate on a you know, marketing department or something like that. So that's ultimately what I really liked about you know, either owning my own business and having employees or, or going into financial services. Got it. So then with your politics and then also with your business, what are the things that you look for in a teammate or a team member that you're allowing to join in? That's a great question. So, um, so number one, when you own your business and you want somebody to work for you, you don't say, I don't say, hey, Sean, you're going to work for me. I want you to be a teammate. I want you to be part of things. Because then you're, you're buying into what I'm trying to do with the business. And that makes for a better result, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when it comes to doing things charitably, once again, you have to build a good team in order from go, to go from here to here. So say it's the run for Beagle, or the MSD Heroes Challenge. Like one of the things I learned really early on is that everybody's got to be on the same page. And the team that you want to build is where everybody gets something. And everybody gets this. Uh, you get a lot more done if you don't care about who has the credit. Hmm. You know, you see a lot of people do these things, and what you learn about them, unfortunately, is that they were doing it for their own mo- own motivations, their own reasons. So that's a great teammate to have is somebody who gets that it's about collaboration and there's some synergy to a great team, and that's what you look for in a teammate. Um, you, you're really a big proponent of a mentor, and you said that even when you first got into the entrepreneurial journey. Um, you didn't want to listen to anyone and everything like that. Do you think the mentors helped you shape your mindset on how to properly do it the right way? Yeah. You know, when I, I first got into the financial business, which was back in early 1996, um, the biggest mistake that I made was I didn't take to mentoring very well. Because mm-hmm. remember, I, I was kind of like spoiled and, you know, I didn't really get it. Yeah. And also, I think I was greedy. Yeah. You know, when you, you share a case, in financial services, you have to split the revenue. Then to my detriment, I didn't get that. You know, I I think that it took me a lot longer to be good at what I did because I didn't have mentoring, but I did get it ultimately. And I had a great mentor in the business. And he he taught me lessons that I still remember today. And, and some of the lessons business-wise never go away. Some of the lessons personally, I remember that I was getting engaged and it was like, I was thinking, what am I doing? Yeah, I had the ring in my hand and I, you know, I couldn't even believe I was doing it. And he was my last stop before I went to, to go do it. And I said, what, you know, what do I do? He goes, just remember, he goes, just every so often buy her flowers for no reason. So I thought to myself, all right, that's kind of lame, you know, but sure enough, like I did it and it was a great piece of advice. And it, you know, it, it taught me to have some perspective about what's really important and that is, you do things sometimes just because it makes somebody else feel good. Yeah. And, you know, that, that was great. But he taught me a lot of great stuff. And mentoring was really important. And I think that when you have a really good mentor, it helps you avoid um, a lot of the, I guess, a lot of the loneliness of sort of going through things. You know, you have somebody who cares for you and you, you, you care for them. And you can kind of go to them for some decent advice. And I think that's important. And you have to pick the mentor who's good for you. Not just somebody who you think is cool, but, you know, who resonates with you. And if you're going to do real estate, find a person who you respect and also who's good 
if you're going to do web design or, or podcasts or whatever, you know, somebody who fits with your, your value system. And that's a mentor, you know? Yeah. And especially for me, it's like, I'm so glad that I picked my mentor when I was so young. And, um, especially last year when I started real estate, I was like, look, I'm still in high school. I have no idea what I'm going on. And like, I, like I want to get into this. So I said, what do I do? So I basically go to 20 different offices and I'm like, hi, um, I work for free, but I just want to learn from you. And then 20 people said no. And then I, I went to my last place and then I, when I walked in, I spoke to Steve and I said, Hey, Steve, um, I'm Sean. I'm still in high school, young right. hustler, young entrepreneur. He was, I was like, all I do is I just want to work for free. And he's like, I'll teach you sit down and start working. And then ever since then we, um, we started like a three-year contract and now I'm working for him and he's basically just, just teaching me, teaching me, teaching me. And, right. uh, and right. in exchange for half my commission, but, but I'm um, hopefully that would be poor, that, that, that would pay, um, pay, a, pay a lot through my life, um, well, with the knowledge that he's given me. So you learned a lesson way, way before I learned a lesson. Yeah. And you know, what, what's going to end up happening is that, that sharing of your revenue is actually an investment in yourself. Yeah. You, you'll, you'll make many multiple times that, but see that, you know, that somebody taught you that that was a, a good thing and a smart thing to do is before you, you interviewed me. So you obviously already knew it. So um, that's cool. You guys both have a lot of cool stuff going on. So it's, it's kind of, it's fun for me to see that, you know, and you know, I, I congratulate you both. Thank you. It's really cool. Thank um, you. I'm a big fan of the saying, how you do anything is how you do everything. And you seem to be a very good proponent of that as far as you're a genuine person and you carry that through business, through personal life, how you treat your family. Like it's, it's really inspiring to see that in our first conversation, I was, I was so blown away that I, I didn't even know that that level of kindness was possible, even in the business world, especially in some area that you're in. Um, what was it like positioning your business in that way where it's just out of the proper gratitude and you're genuinely here to serve people? And, you know, first of all, that's a great line. Say that line again. How you do everything. How you do anything is how you do everything. Yeah. I, I remember somebody told me a long time ago. You do the small things right, it shows you do the big things right. So that's similar, but your way sounds uh, cooler. Um, a friend from uh, Harvard, he told me that he yeah. were in band together when I was a freshman and he was a senior. And freshman year, I was not doing anything with my life. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't doing good at all. And he was joking around, obviously, but he just kind of told me because uh, I was about to miss a band competition because I didn't clean my room. My mom was going to pull me from band because I wouldn't clean my room. Yeah. And then I thought that was crazy. But then he came to me, he's like, how you do anything is how you do everything. If you can't keep your room clean, then you can't keep your band clean. You can't do anything right. Right. And that stuck with me ever since. And this dude is the top mathematician in Harvard. Like he's crazy, super smart. But anyway. I think, I think the reason that that saying makes sense is because it's, it's, it shows authenticity. How you do something should be woven through how you do everything. And the, that's your value system. So. Um, so I should say that I don't necessarily do things in business um, for you know for some sort of charitable reason, but I found that in order to be in business in a way that I'm comfortable, it's got to be based on my value system. Mm, okay. So it's it's woven through it because every day you got to go to work and think, all right, what I'm doing is actually important. So if it's not if it's not tied to your value system then it's not relevant, right? And how you do everything is based on really who you are as a person. You know, and I, I like to say to people, you don't, you don't really have anything that you do that's relevant if it's not based on who or what you love. So, 
you know, um, it's like the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. And and I think they sort of got it. It wasn't like the Beatles were my muse or anything like that. But I think that when you realize who you are, like as a person, everything you do will be based on that, at least if you're living an authentic life. So that's what I think that means, to me at least. I completely agree with that. Uh, in my first, I've been doing photography job for four years now. Um, and for the first three years at least, I just thought that if you can get a sale, then you're winning. So I would sell whatever made sense in their head and I would say, can we close it? Cool, let's do it. And we'll do a project, $500 <clears throat> here, $400 here. It was like smaller projects, but I like the rush of making a check. And then that rush obviously goes away after the consistency and doing things over and over. And then when that uh, enthusiasm fell apart, I was stuck with, what am I really giving people? And I would then go back on every single project that I did. Mm. And I said, they didn't really get an ROI on this. And, oh, they didn't really get the value that they thought they were going to get from this. And I completely was blind to that because I was having so much fun just doing whatever I was doing. Right. And then this year, like it's just like a gut feeling. I can't do it anymore. I'm not going to And I, I told myself this year, I'm not going to sell anything that won't actually drive value in someone's business or their life. And... I found myself already in the first month saying no and losing clients a lot more than I was even going to expect. But every project that we were going to pitch to each other was simply just a tactic. Like, here's this. Uh, this sounds cool. Right. But I knew deep down that this will not serve them in any way that they would actually want. So I've restructured my entire company. With Money Talks, Money Matters, we make sure our mission is we want to help youth stay out of debt and stay out of really big things. And now... I can get out of bed so easy, so much easier because I know everything that I'm doing has a purpose and it's going to actually provide value in someone's life. And that is just the most priceless thing that I can ever hope someone can realize, you know. You, you guys are both getting it. And I think that um, if you want to take the last 40 seconds, what you just said and coalesce it into one thing, it's your why. Yeah. You have to know what your why is. There's a guy named Simon Sinek who wrote The Power of Why. And he explained why Apple was successful because their why was to create beautiful machines that help people, you know, be more functional or whatever. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was, but yeah. your why is is everything. If you understand your why, then everything else makes a lot of sense. And you know what's kind of cool is that when you're younger and then you you get older, you keep refining it. So you don't have to feel this pressure to know your life's mission when you're 20. Just figure it out and yeah. you, you screw up. I think that, you know, what you just reminded me of is something you and I talked about last week. And that was, you know, this perception that money's bad, right? Yeah. You know, you were talking about making sales and selling, you know, th and the thing I'll tell you about selling, by the way, is don't compete against other people. Compete against yourself. When you, when you sell yourself, you have absolutely no com competition. Mm. So if you get better, then you win. If you compete against other people, it's a zero sum. I mean, you think Jeff Bezos and Buffett and uh, Bill Gates are competing about money? Because yeah. it just depends whose share price is higher at the moment based on whatever. Yeah. Those guys are thinking about how do I create AI? How do I, how do I perfect the world of charity? And they're worried about what they're worried about. You figure out you know, what you want to be doing and compete against yourself. That's kind of the way to achieve. But... Just because you want to make money, by the way, doesn't make you a bad guy. It's about achievement. That I think that's what turns you on so much about it, Darian, is that you want to achieve. It's not necessarily about money, right? You know, yeah. 
I, there's, just, there's all these people out there that think, you know, money is the root of all evil. It's not the case. The, the love of money is the problem. If your only goal in life is to chase money, you've missed the point. Yeah. You know, meritocracy and capitalism are about kind of achievement and producing. You know, if you think about railroads and buildings and technology and medicine and computers and all that achievement, that's because people want to achieve. It's not because they wanted money. Yeah. If you want to have your money and give it all away, which, by the way, all the billionaires are now doing, the giving pledge, mm-hmm. they want to give all their money away. If you, if you want to give your money away, great. So, you know, the love of money is the problem, not money. You know, it, the, the entire point of capitalism is, is you achieve. You want to give your money away? Fine. But that doesn't make money the problem. It doesn't make achieving a problem. And I think you're, you're kind of getting it. And you, you probably will get it because you're coming from the right place. So um, sorry about that. That was a lot of thoughts. And yeah, one, no, that one, was perfectly well put. Okay. And, that was well said. And it definitely adds to your values. And um, speaking about values, I, I know that you're an activist in this community and uh, you host many um, organized events, such as I think it was like the Best Buddies event. And then also you helped with like the Run for Beagle and many other, many other events to help this community. So what made you an activist and, and how, how has that helped you with networking, meeting new people, and just making new connections? Well, number one, let's, let's start with that. It, it's not that I did it so I can network and everything like that. It, it has, I think, helped me meet people. And I think there's a residual benefit to it. You know, maybe I have clients as a result of it. But I think anybody who's really an activist and anybody who really understands it understands that you do it for whatever your own particular reasons are. In my case, I got involved with the Parkland Buddy Sports Program about 12 years ago because I had started a networking group with a few friends of mine. And the the mission of the networking group was we didn't want to just make it about exchanging cards and giving business to each other. We wanted to give something back to the community, and that was kind of our main point. So we looked around, and we interviewed all these different organizations, and we found the Buddy Sports Program. Great people. You know, and a lot of the people who are leaders in the community run it. So we said, let's let's get involved with them. And that was back in, uh, I don't know, 2009 or something. So that's where it all kind of started because I was somewhat new to the com- community. We had only moved here in, in 06. So that was the starting point of it. And it was just because we wanted to do something a little bit more than feed ourselves. And then, you know, it, it just I got involved in different things here and there just by accident because I wanted to be doing things charitably. But, and I, I can't stress this enough, the first time you start doing things to get business, A, you've lost because it's the wrong, it's the wrong outlook to take. You're making it about yourself rather than who you want to help. And number two, people see right through it. Yeah. You, you can never do that. Yeah. And, and then, you know, in terms of now with the MSD Heroes Challenge and 4F Now and Run for Beagle, you know, I had, uh, I had a daughter who was at the school. She's fine, but she was there during the shooting. And, you know, I think that when I go back to how I felt about the world after 9-11, where I lived in the city, mm-hmm. you know, my wife and I, you know, we were sad and we cried with everybody else, you know, that day and because we lived there. And I, I thought to myself, man, I'm going to change the world and, you know, I'm going to make the world a better place. And guess what? I forgot all about it. Went back to work, did my thing. And then after the shooting, 
I just, I thought to myself, you know what? There's no way I'm going to let my kids sort of enter this movement and, and go through this by themselves. Like I wanted them to see that I was, you know, standing beside them. And that, that was kind of my why in the last few years. And through that, I met some amazing people. And that, that's what kind of got me into the run for Beagle. Like I met Scott Beagle's parents, who were the sweetest people in the world. And when I did the MSD Heroes Challenge, I met Tony Montalto for the first time and Fred Guttenberg and some and Max Schachter, who I already knew. And how, how do you not want to help? Yeah. So you do this because you find people that are just nice people and you just do it. And there is nothing on the other side of I just do it. It's just that's it. So I, I got very close with, you know, Scott's parents and, you know, that's what I'm working on now, and I love it. And, um, you know, I, I think the takeaway, you know, based on what you said was do it because of how it makes you feel and then what it does for other people, and then that's it. Draw the line there. There is no expectation. Don't do it for any other reasons. And then you, then you know you're in the right spot. Yeah, that was really well put. That was yeah. really well put. Um you're also the president of the Chamber of Commerce, correct? Yeah, Parkland. Parkland. Um, talk about that a little bit and what are your roles and I don't know, what are some of your insights of being a part of that? It's exciting um, because I'm involved in, um, you know, a lot of different organizations, but, you know, at the heart of things that really get me going is business. Yeah. Love business. Always. And um, it just, it excites me. And I, I love the challenge of thinking about what I want to do putting it down on paper, you know, in a, in a, in a couple of bullets, like that's general, my business plans are notoriously short. It's like a sentence. Then it boils down to numbers and it's activity. You know, don't think about how many houses you want to sell. Think about how many people you need to see hmm. and then how many houses that may result in you selling and so forth. So I love the idea of business and I got involved with the Parkland Chamber several years ago and I never, I never contributed anything, you know, like seven, eight years ago. I just didn't contribute a thing. And some of my friends who I really respect got involved on the board and I wanted to, I, I don't know. I just, I get kind of tired of just sort of not getting anything from it. You know, like why was I even a member? So I wanted to make some contribution because you, you remember when you contribute something, you get something more out of it. You, you only get out of what something, what you put into it. Right. So I got involved. I got myself onto the board and all of a sudden from a business standpoint, there were so many awesome things we could do with this chamber because it was a small little organization in this massively growing town. You guys live here. Yeah. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It's growing like a weed. And and as soon as they they deal that farmland at some point is going to get developed. And everybody knows what's going on in Coral Ridge. That's you know, people twist and turn and fight, but eventually it's going to get developed. Yeah. yeah. And that's going to be growth. And and where you live out here, all they do is build houses. So those are home-based businesses, and there's all this development and growth that the Parkland Chamber can be a part of and be relevant, and that is a lot of fun. So I, I love the idea of like kind of coming up with, all right, what could we really do? So right now in the chamber, like what I'm really focused in on is number one, I think it's a shame that the chamber, or the the city has all sorts of brick and mortar businesses, most of which don't belong to the chamber. So I'm 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 gonna like fix like examples. 
Well, I'm not going to call people out. I'm just saying there's businesses that are not in the chamber, and uh, I'm going to fix that. And and to be fair, they don't see the value. So we want to have a a strong value proposition, so that's fun. And then um, there's a lot of automation and kind of structural things that I want to do in the chamber so it runs more efficiently because, look, we're not Goldman Sachs. We don't have a middle management staff of 10,000 people. You know, there's like one assistant and one kind of halftime person. This is really interesting because normally when people have really big ideas like this, they have a platform to build on and like an organization, but this seems like you have a smaller platform and be really creative with how you use your resources, um, which seems to be a real cool challenge for you. Um, what would you say is, how do you structure value proposition is what I'm curious about. Well, the value proposition is, what do we want to offer the community? And if we're going to be the voice of business, I mean, we're talking about the chamber, right? Yeah. So if we're going to be the voice of business, what does the business community need from us? And we have to figure that out. And we have to communicate it to them. You can have a value proposition about what you do for the, you know, for website design or podcasts. You have to be able to communicate it. And you too. You know, if if you can't say what it is that you're communicating to the community, then, you know, you failed. So, um, that goes back into copywriting and like what we're talking about avatars and things like that. Where Fair enough. So I, I think with the chamber, the great thing about our chamber and the great thing about Parkland is you have all these people that have moved here from like New York City and 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 Chicago and big towns where there were huge successes, mm-hmm. but they like the idea of a small town. So there's a lot of brain power. There's some really, really smart people in the chamber and you use that as leverage. That's the point. You leverage that. And you can get an incredible amount done. You have you heard one of these rock bands that have like three people in it, but they're super loud? Oh yeah. And you don't get it. You're like, it, like Rush is like that, and it, you know, I love we're Rush. we're trying. Yeah, so we're we're trying to be Rush with just a little footprint, and and we're doing it. And I, you know, I suspect that in a, a year or two, we'll probably be 50 percent bigger, and we'll make the impact, and we'll help businesses in the way they need help. You push things really fast, and you you you're really aggressive with how you move in within your business structures. How do you manage time? Because you're in a lot of stuff. Well, you focused on what you need to do right now, and and I I kind of have a like an upside down triangle way of dealing with things. You know, I I think what's my macro level desire to do something, what what it is that I want to accomplish, and then I get more specific, and I I don't I don't allow time wasters into my orbit. You have to be aggressive about that. Um, also, my days seem to get longer and longer. <laughs> so uh, it's it's a function of time. Um, you know, usually I get up at 3, 3.15. I start doing a lot of the stuff that I need to do to, to organize my day, but I, I don't have a problem with it. I think that there's nothing in my life that I don't want. So it seems like a lot, but it's really not. You know, and Whatever doesn't work as efficiently as you need it to work out, you hire for it. So my business, you know, if there's a, you know, see problem, fix problem. If if my business needs something, then we figure out, is there somebody at the organization who can do it? And if not, we eliminate it or we hire for it. Same thing in the chamber. You know, right now we're doing a strategic review of every vendor we have and everybody who does work for the chamber to see how they fit in. And what we may end up finding out, I suspect, is that we're going to have to hire more people. You know, like the um, the Coral Springs Chamber is, I think, uh, 
I don't know, three or four times the size of us in terms of membership. Of course, Coral Springs is a huge place. They, they have a much more mature kind of organization and staff. And maybe that's, maybe that's a direction where the Parkland Chamber needs to go in terms of building. So you kind of evaluate where it is you want to go, and then you have to deal with it, whether it's staffing or eliminating something that doesn't matter. Now, when it comes to hiring out and hiring people, really, like how, like, like how do you separate the good from the bad when it comes to like a hiree? Well, so it, it's not good and bad as much as it is, is this a fit? You know, there's a lot of smart people. There's a lot of people that have a lot of talent. It's, it's who's a fit in your organization. You know, you guys know what culture is. Of course. So sometimes it's just about a cultural fit. Like for me, I don't look at somebody and say, this is a person way smarter than me, or this is a person who's going to be awesome at dealing with client relationships and things like that. I'm looking for a person who understands this is the culture in our business. Like our culture happens to be we want the clients to feel as though they can come to us for anything and we're not going to be too busy for them. Mm. So it's more concierge based. Like it's, it's not a kind of churn and burn type of practice. And a lot of financial planning practices are just very narrow, but wide. We're, we're, we're very deep in terms Vertical of the client. Horizontal. Right. And what we want is we want people who get that. And also to look, to criticize myself, my, my pace is, is a little intense and that's not for everybody. You know, I'm, it's not like I'm a yeller and I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a hard guy to work for, but as, as my assistant loves to say, I'm fine until I'm not. So I think people need to get that. So it's, it's about finding a good fit. That's all. Got it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And then, um, I'm just going to go into networking. How do you, how do you approach networking and how, how do you approach building a connection and also building a relationship and helping that, helping that with your business and implementing that into your life? That's a great question. So look, networking is a lot of things to a lot of different people, but at the end of the day, it's, it's what you want out of it, right? So everybody thinks networking is about getting more business. Networking is about connecting and engaging. Your, your outcomes should be, I just want to engage with more people because I like people. That's it. The residual will be you will get business if that's what you want. So the way I approach networking is my attitude is you have to give so you can get. You join an organization, the first thing you do is get on committees. Give give something back. Don't just show up and hand out your business card. Don't just join something to get something. If if your attitude is I'm going to I'm going to make the most out of this so I can have a great experience and I'm going to engage with people. That's a great way to network. You know, join join networking groups or join organizations that resonate with you that are congruent with what it is you want to do in life and you know, of course you don't join things where you're not going to, you know, fit in. Yeah. But get involved. Make a contribution. Otherwise don't get involved. Got it. And then also, since um, you do own and operate a business, what are some of your business failures slash endeavors that ended up failing that you, that you can learn from? And then you can tell us like a story. Oh, well, we only have 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, look, like I, we talked about before, find good mentors. Um, I think in terms of failures um, in my business, I think when you you chase money. You know, if you try to figure out what everybody wants to buy, 
you know, in my business and financial services, if you try to find, you know, like the niche of niches and, you know, you think that's going to help you, you always go wrong. Meaning like I used to think I got to get into, um, you know, estate planning because that means rich people and mm-hmm. that means money. And what I learned really quickly was I didn't really enjoy it. It wasn't, wasn't my cup of tea. You got to, you got to really have a very specific kind of interest level to do estate planning. And, you know, I think that, that was a fail. And I, and I, I flailed around doing that kind of stupid stuff for a while. So that, those were multiple failures. Um, in terms of business, I've had a lot of failures. And, and generally speaking, um, your biggest failures 99% of the time are because you're chasing money. So I'll, I won't get into specifics, but it definitely I've failed. And definitely it's, it's generally because your motivations are wrong. You know, if if you think a little bit about your why and, you know, you understand that, you're fine. And I, I think, you know, funny thing is about giving people advice like this is in one hand, I want to give advice. I want people to take it. But you know, and you know, and I know when you give unsolicited advice, nobody cares, yeah. including your kids. Yeah. So the best possible advice I can give you is embrace the failure. You know, don't do stupid things so you can fail, but try your best and understand you're going to fail because generally there's a direct correlation between the magnitude of the screw-up and the seeds of the success afterwards. So challenge yourself and embrace the failure. And I think that's what I'm taking away, and that's what I have taken away from all the failures. You know, when you're younger, you don't get it. It just seems awful. But the advice I can give is, you know, go for it. Just do your thing and fail. And you know, you were asking me about people who fit in my organization. I could care less if people make mistakes. First of all, I'm never going to put anybody in a position where clients could lose money. But in terms of everything else that I delegate out, I could care less if mistakes get made. I just need to know that you care about the company and you really care about the clients. And everything else is fine. But it's hard to get people to buy into that because you know most people are trained that mistakes are bad. So yeah, that's the takeaway. Yeah, especially the one thing that I was taught young is fail means first attempt in learning. So once I heard that, I was like, that it just clicked, and I was like, um, now it's like rather seeing as failure as an obstacle. I, I embrace and I say, what can I do better? What can I learn? So it's like that, that improves my lifestyle and whole. Yeah, well, you know, look, you have you have smart parents, um, and it's obviously where you know it explains a lot about where you are now, and, and explains where you are now. You guys are really far ahead of where I was at your age and where a lot of people are. And you get a lot of that stuff. So, you know, maybe that's that's something for everybody to take away too. Yeah, and that's the main reason why we started this, just to kind of give the insight of you and then also us and saying, hey, like, like it's okay to screw up. It's okay to make mistakes, but we're going to pick you up and we're going we're gonna to better you and we're going to better this whole community. That's a strong why. Mm-hmm. And knowing that, like, you didn't come from a super high-class background, um, I just want to know what were some things that you did to do some risk mitigation and make sure you don't fall flat on your face because I'm sure you didn't have too much capital like when you're first getting out into the world. Did you, were you a big saver? Were you a big um, just preparing for failure or were you just kind of like balls to the wall like yeah. let's just get this done? Um, well, look, when I was younger, I, I had a fast start. Because I was always making money and I got it okay. and I saved yeah. and, and then... Um, so you were a big saver in the beginning though. Yeah, but you know, once again, I had a big fail when I was young. You know, I got, I got very sick just from, just from pressure. 
I got very sick when I was in my 20s, lost everything. And it was awful. And I, I can't count that as a mistake because that was, that was scar tissue from, you know, I guess, who knows, my childhood, I don't know. But uh, we don't have to get into that. But it was a setback. And I lost everything. And, you know, including a lot of confidence. So I had to start again. And I remember sometimes, like, I had nothing. And I remember sometimes I was, I was taking rolled coins to, to operate. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, the way I grew up had really, it had no bearing on where I am, you know, in, in terms of the money I had or didn't have. But the, I think the lesson is sometimes, you know, how you grow up is something that you should use as a learning experience. You know, it wasn't, it, see, it's not as simple as having, you know, silver spoon in your mouth. It's about what you took away from it. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, and uh, Dave Ramsey once said, he's like, you either have lighthouses or you have lessons. And a lot of times people that's in your life are going to be lighthouses. So you can just stay away. Don't do that. But that's equally as valuable as a normal lesson of someone like a role model. And I found myself nine times out of 10, I've had to look at lighthouses because that's just been, I guess, the mm -hmm. circle that I've grown up around. Um, and it's important to understand that, I think. Yeah. You guys didn't tell me I was going to be learning all this cool stuff today. I didn't have anything to write any of these, <laughs> these little you tips. You can always watch it back. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of uh, little nuggets of wisdom I'm getting from you guys. So um, that's an unintended uh, benefit. So thank you. It's yeah, great stuff. Yeah, we to learn from you. And it yeah. normally goes mutual. I love just to see where other people's perspectives are. Yeah. You know, look, I think um, there's a lot of little nuggets like that you know your your past is either a, a prisoner or a professor you know so i think it's a great takeaway yeah it's a great takeaway so i think you know we're obviously on the same page with that type of thing and also when you said uh, you got really sick from uh like all the stress and stuff like that i actually just went through that and it was um the end of the year things were just failing things were just going completely not what i intended and on top of that personal life was hitting me and there's just things going on in personal life and I always thought that I had a really big tank of pain. Like I can tolerate pain really well. I can mm -hmm. take a hit, I can take a beat, and I can fall flat, flat, on my, flat on my face. But I didn't know that as I internalized a lot of that stress, and I was just like, all right, we'll deal with it later. I didn't deal with it. I thought if I just didn't feel it, or I just act like I didn't feel it, I would just go on my life and it would be fine. But apparently, um, I had to go to the doctors because I actually got a stomach ulcer from that amount of stress that I had. And it was, was mind-blowing. Like, the doctor's like, you literally have an ulcer, and it's not like a bacteria growth. It's simply just you probably have too much stress. Mm. It's crazy to hear that. Um, so now this has been a phase of just, like, understanding how to actually process emotions rather than just keep it down there and not worry about it and just keep telling Well, you're fortunate. You learned early. You know, you yeah. see all these football players now that have CTE. Yeah. And it's because they can take hits. And boxers, they can take hits. But you don't think that 30 years, you'll have scar tissue. So, you know, scar tissue is about, you know, kind of injuries that heal, but not really heal. That yeah. Scar tissue formed over and you lose range of motion yeah. or you, you have stress-related issues. And, you know, once again, it sounds like you got some help and you got some good advice. Okay. So that, that's a great takeaway for people that listen to stuff like this. You know, everybody's always talking about mental health. That, that's a key thing. People think, hey, I'm going to college, I'll, I'm gonna move on. Or I, I can go out and work and I'm gonna move on, or I can deal, and it's always there. You know, the scar tissue's there forming and it, it, it hits you when you're 30, 35, 40, and 
you end up in an unhappy marriage, not because your partner's bad, but you didn't deal with stuff from when you were 19. Yeah. I think I got that from a, after the shooting happened, a group of Columbine students organized some kind of like financial thing where they can send Douglas to Columbine to talk to Columbine survivors. Hmm. And it was this cool thing. And then me and my friend at the time had an organization called Stories Untold where we would interview survivors and get their story shared. So we were automatically on that trip. And it was really cool. But the biggest thing that I learned from that was that if you don't deal with, first of all, I have mad respect for everyone that survived Columbine. Like I'm friends with all of them and they're really cool people. But what I took away personally from that was that it's important to deal with it as fast as possible because if you don't, you don't. And it's just there. Mm -hmm. And obviously some people take longer to heal than others. And that's completely fine. I'm not bashing that in any way possible. But it's really just the fact that I saw the perspective of, okay, if I just keep this down, especially like the whole shooting thing, if I keep that down, it's going to stay down and it's going to come back just the same way if I don't process it. So I, I allowed myself to cry more. I allowed myself to feel things more. And I'm glad I was able to do that because I've learned that vulnerability is actually a tool in the chest. And mm. It's something you can pull upon rather than think it's a bad thing. So um, what's the takeaway? Is it proactivity? Like So the takeaway is simply just to like allow myself to feel, really, um, and not get mad at myself for being sad or angry. That was really the key takeaway. And mm -hmm. allowing myself to actually not emotion, like show emotion instantly right after. Like I don't react instantly, but I, I allow myself time, say, at the end of the week to say, like, how is I really feeling? Am I okay? And giving myself that extra two seconds has really been a big thing. I, I forgot about that now recently and I went back to my old ways. But once again, if I allowed myself to just allow myself to be sad with what's going on, I probably wouldn't have gotten that ulcer. Yeah, I mean it's it's there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there and there's a lot to process. I think, you know like what I'm taking away from from what you're saying is you gotta give yourself a break. Yeah. But also I think when you're young you think anything's possible, yeah, and you know nothing's really a problem, and in reality, that's the trick. Is you have to really listen to your body and listen to your mind, and and hopefully have people around you who care about you who kind of set you straight, yeah. Because basically, the rule in life: if, if you're a teenage guy, you're an idiot, and it's basically the rule. <laughs> yeah, teenage boys are. A 13, 14 year old teenage boy is the worst <laughs> person on the face of the earth. And I, agree. I, I was one of them and I had a brother. And, and, you know, I think, you know, guys, guys want to be tough. Yeah. That's the thing. You want to be tough. So by definition, you, you push it all down. Of course. So when you get it, it's kind of good, right? Of course. Yeah. I was, and, keep going. And, and especially just to bring back the question, like it, when you hit that I would say wall at 20 and like 25, like how did you deal with that stress? How did you deal mm. with all those emotions? Uh, I didn't, I didn't. That's why I ended up the way I did. Um, so I, I got, uh, I had choices to make, you know, after it all blew up. And it, one of my choices was, you know, where, where was I gonna go with my life? Cause I, I had seen where my family went. And I think, when I look back on, you know, you, you kind of, you see inflection points in your life. I had made a conscious decision to take a path that I, I wasn't sure about. And that was, all right, what's going to happen if I get therapy? You know, so I did it. And what's going to happen if I just try to push through it instead of giving up, which was kind of a paradigm, in, you know, in my family. And I, I, I took the path. You know, um, least traveled. 
And, you know, and there was things that I wanted. And I had some really successful friends who were, you know, guys my age. And I'm like, why can't I do that? And I think that's what kind of pulled me along. I just had to suspend disbelief. So I think like kind of a theme in my life for the next eight or 10 years was I kept doing things completely outside of my comfort zone. Like I, I was living in Boston and I moved to New York sight unseen with no salary, with no nothing. And I went into the financial business. That's when I started. And that there was no plan B because I didn't have any salary and I had barely any money. So I had to succeed. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I couldn't not because then I'd be embarrassed in front of my friends. And then, you know, a couple of years later, I met my, my wife and we ended up getting engaged and married. And I didn't know what I was doing. There was nobody to tell me which, which direction I was going. But, you know, she, she was kind of the one setting me straight at that point. And, you know, then still, you know, I, it's like I'm flying around on balsa wood. You know, I, I don't really know when it's all going to sort of collapse because I don't know, you know, there's nobody telling me what to do at all times. You just kind of keep pushing through and you hope you're doing the right thing. So you, you kind of do it based on, you know, being authentic and doing the right thing, right? Yeah. And then, you know, then I had a kid. I had Lizzie. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you want to get your act together? Have a kid. <laughs> My dad did. <laughs> I, I mean, that that puts everything in perspective. That gave me a yeah. completely different sense of urgency. So, was the kid the reason why you did like a full three hundred and sixty, and you like you really got on track? No, I I got I got married. Okay, so okay, so I'm guessing your wife put um put a lot of rules and a foundation I, down. That, I don't think it, it was probably more that. Uh, the you're not someone's depending on you now there's another person in the equation what was it more of that well no i mean i don't mean to disagree with anything you guys say but for me it was different okay um i was definitely punching out of my weight class with my wife she was really together mm. extremely cool good family and the whole thing and inexplicably she thought i was awesome and i don't you know i don't know why i just she she dug me and i had to earn that and I felt like I had to earn that every single day, yeah. right? So, you know, I kind of still have to. So I think that keeps me, keeps mm-hmm. me kind of on an even keel, because that's that's kind of representative of everything else. If you want good things in life, you have to you have to be a good person, you have to be a good citizen, do the right things. And I think the, you know, that that was probably the real turning point for me, at least. Right. You yeah, know, that, that was yeah. a very strong, I, strong. I can relate to that a lot. Uh, when I first met my girlfriend Fallon, uh, I was not doing well. Like I was just everything that you wouldn't want in a boyfriend. Basically, I was that. Mm. But my personality somehow carried through, and then she saw that. I still ask her to this day. I was like, "Why? Like that's crazy." But she was never like, "You gotta just get your life together. You need to get in shape." But she was always just supporting. She was like, "Do you really want to do that right now?" Because she knew that like what I was doing, I was going out and like I didn't, I didn't really enjoy. It. I thought that was what you're supposed to do. Um, and she kind of just helped me bring to. The, and I think she saw that in me of that I didn't enjoy it as much as I showed that I did. And she's like, she thought she saw it right through it. And over over time, it was just like, "Do you really want to do that? Or do you want to do that?" And slowly carved away. And then same thing where you're like, I, I kind of wanted to earn that and you see something in me that I don't even see at that moment. I, I need to at least see if it's possible that I am what you think I am. And over time, now it's two years going with the relationship. It's stronger than ever. And like, 
a big part of why I got things together was because of that. I can't say everything because like there's a lot of that I have to do, obviously, but it was almost like that humbling factor of, okay, she believes I can do it. So I might think I can do it. You know? Somebody believes in you. Yeah. Who you respect, then you yeah. should believe in yourself. You know, the funny thing is, is that a friend of mine said to me once, you know, basically as a guy, 98% of every poor decision you make involves money if you're drinking or a girl. And ironically enough, some of the best decisions you make could be about a girl or, you know, a partner, right? Yeah. Because, you, you know, you see yourself reflected in what they think is awesome about you. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah. Right? Um, and especially that that was really well put. And then kind of just to reel it back in with, um, with like the finances, what are some things that you noticed that are different with your money habits from your 10s and 20s to now to your 30s and 40s and 50s? Well, you know, clearly as your responsibilities grow, you know, you need, you need money to fulfill some of these promises that you make to yourself and to your family. So, you know, when you're, you're 19 or 20, basically your problem is, um, how am I going to have a good time? And, and where's my next piece of pizza come from? You know, there, there's really, <laughs> there's really, you know, there's really nothing to worry about. Yeah. So, you know, you, we keep talking about the why, like, why am I going to save money? I was saving and investing because I knew that's what I was supposed to be doing. And I, I bought insurance and, you know, I did certain things because I knew that's what I was supposed to be doing. I didn't really know why I was doing it. Now, everything I do has a real reason for it. You know, I got I to gotta pay for college. You know, I got, I got lucky with Lizzie. She went to Florida State and that's, you know, public school and yeah. she got bright futures. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's going to happen with Caroline. I think Caroline's going somewhere where, you know, it's got a bigger check to write. Um, you know, so there's school, you have a mortgage, you want to save for emergencies, mm -hmm. you know, come on, everybody knows stuff comes out of nowhere. You know, hurricane, you, your house blows away. You still have to pay a 2% deductible. So yeah. you, you need, you need resources. And I think you, those, those priorities change. Got it. You know, I think, I think a great, a great lesson with the money is you, you pay yourself first, you save money. And you set aside money for whatever it is you want to set aside. And then if you want to go spend it on nonsense, that's fine. Because you're, you're still doing the job. You're still putting money away. You don't have to save with no end in sight. So I think when you, you save first, you know, for whatever it is that you find important, if you, you want to go out and buy a Porsche or whatever, fine. You know, you're doing the right thing. Yeah. So I think that's a, big, that's a big change in kind of how I see things. Got it. And then now if you were to give advice to anyone in their 10s and 20s with especially saving or even just being um, being different with your money, what would you give? Advice about money to somebody in their teens yeah. or 20s? <laughs> hmm. That's a big one. Um, well, you know, once again, you know, let's be real about this. Nobody's going to listen to me about what to do with their money in their 20s. I think that, you know, think about what scares you or what turns you on or, or what you feel about money and then address it. So if you mm. feel like, for instance, it sounds like you did and I certainly did. I, I don't know about you, but having no money as a kid is scary. You feel afraid all the time. And I, I think one reason that I started saving money in my 20s and I got into the business I did was because I was scared all the time. Yeah. And my dad, 
it was sick and he didn't have any insurance or money saved and it was scary. So I think, you know, in your 20s, maybe part of it is righting old wrongs and that's your motivation. Or maybe you have a big, gigantic desire to start your own real estate company and who knows why. Mm-hmm. You save money for that. So I think that the best advice I would probably give is figure out what's important to you about money and why. Ask yourself that question and then save for it. Yeah. And you know what? Maybe you won't get your act together till you're 35 or 40. Because I didn't. So you don't really know. But I think if you can actually understand what it is that's important to you and who knows what it is, save money for that. There are no great tips. You know, that you want ideas on investments, you know, we, we could talk crypto till, you know, the end of time. But that's I think that's the wrong that's the wrong direction. You know, figure out what you want to do with your money and why, and that's probably a great start. I think that's the best answer we could have gotten. Yeah. Wow. All right, cool. Um as we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to say? Um, you tell me, man. Um, what did we miss? Well, any questions that we didn't ask you that you well, would yeah, like? To, you yeah. sent me a list of things. That list of would, thing. I, yeah. I think we hit almost, we hit everything really. We talked yeah. about, uh, what you volunteer and your time management, how much you love your family and what that means to you. I, I think, I think it was an amazing show. I couldn't be happy with it. Oh, well, thank you. It was a pleasure. I think that, you know, I'm trying to think of like, like thematically, like what, what did really talk about today? And I think, um, you know, if I had to really think it through, it was kind of like a whole mindfulness discussion. Like, yeah. where, you know, what's important now? Mm-hmm. So I think, um, you know, if I was going to leave you guys with something, I was going to leave people listening to this with something, is it's okay to fail, right? Number one. Number two is, you know, if you're going to think about how to sort of run your life, um, hmm, you know, start from where you are. You can't go back or forward. Start from where you are. Um, use what you have. You know, we're, we're talking about being really smart. You're either smart or you're not, but use what you have. And then work as hard as possible. That's it. And then everything yeah. else will kind of work itself out. You, you're going to have, you're going to get banged around in life. You're going to have bumps and bruises. So understand that. And if you have to reset, start where you are now. Use what you have and then just work your ass off. Thank right? you so much. Thank wow. you. You're very really welcome. Appreciate it. Oh, Doug. It's, All right, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank it was you. It's a lot of fun.